I told my wife just here yesterday or the day before, there's a subject we were discussing here among some of the brethren just in the last few months that I said, I am very sure about some parts of that subject. I don't have the slightest uncertainty about what God means in terms of his intent. I know what the Bible says. It's very clear. But there are some parts of that subject that are somewhat of a mystery to me because God may mean some things I'm just not seeing or I don't understand how he's going to do it. There are some subjects, and this isn't a critical subject for salvation that I'm talking about, that I am sure about some things, but I'm not sure about everything. And there's some things I still am waiting on the Lord. Lord, I'm pretty sure this is what you mean by this, but I need to be careful not to be too dogmatic because if I'm too dogmatic, I'll anchor myself down to something that I may find out I'm wrong about later. And I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident, but pretty confident isn't the same thing as being absolutely sure, you know. We need to know what is absolutely sure and anchor ourselves to that so that we'll never be pulled out of that anchor point. But when it comes to the foundations of the faith, I am sure and certain. I don't have the slightest funny feeling. This is what I was telling my wife. I said, there's some discussions that get started among the ministers and questions I get sent that I am 99.9% positive the answer that I am giving. And I do word it this way. Listen, brethren. Any of you, brethren, that speak on anything like this, you need to be careful. None of you are doing this, but this is something that's a very good preemptive thing. Be very careful how dogmatic you get about making statements. This is, you know, without any flexibility because it'll be hard to eat that later if you find out you were wrong. I've always told the ministers overseas that I work with, when I talk to them, have any kind of a gathering mind, so to speak, with them, I've always told them, brethren, be careful. Because once you get overly dogmatic about something, not only could you put yourself in a position where you're going to have to back up and you wouldn't have to do that, but you also could seriously offend people because they believe different and you're basically telling them they're an idiot to believe that way. Well, you know it's da-da-da-da-da. You know what I'm going to tell you, brethren, to say? And this is exactly what I said to them. I've told Brother Kosa this. He's never failed to do it. I don't know how many times we've rode, ridden together to meetings and we were talking about this. I said, here's the key as far as I'm concerned. My belief is, the way I see it, my present view, you hear those phrases? Those are nowhere near as poking in the eye as saying, the truth is, now there's some things the truth is. My conception of what faith is and how faith saves and what is all encompassed in full salvation, I don't have the slightest doubt. I am absolutely convicted and convinced on it. That's what I was talking to my wife about. I said, there's some subjects where I've talked about with those brethren that they are asking me questions about. And I am 99.9% sure what I'm telling them is the only possibility in the Bible. But I have inside of me a little funny feeling sometimes, God, please help me to be right. And that's why I'm careful how I word it to them. And I say, brethren, this is how I see this. Because if I find out later, I thought I was 99.9% sure. It's like these things that say it removes 99.9% of germs or bacteria or whatever. Okay, if all it takes is one-tenth of 1% to kill you, who cares if it removes 99.9%? I realize that's ridiculous. But the point is, if it doesn't get 100%, maybe something's still going to get you. I don't want something to get me. I don't want something to get you. I want you to be sure about what you can be sure about. I want you to be moderate about what you can't be sure about. I'm not talking about being wishy-washy. You better have some convictions, but you better anchor the convictions you are absolutely certain about so deep they'll never get pulled out. 
and things that there could be any question about, you better be reasonable enough to leave that the kind of anchor you can wind back up and pull back in the boat if you realize you anchored in the wrong place. And I think it's important for us to understand how critical it is for us to know what's real and what's not. Know what's partial and what's complete. I don't have a single question in my mind about who God is. I don't understand everything about who God is. Does that sound contradictory? Who does? He said, can you by searching find out God to perfection? I wish you luck. And no amount of searching is going to find out God to perfection. What that means is to completely understand everything about Him. You're not going to. There's some things about God He may never tell you. It's just part of His inner self that it's not your business, you know. It's not going to affect you. But I'll tell you what I do know about God. I know God is real. I know what I know about God. Through the study of the Scripture, through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, through a number of experiences, I know who Jesus is in relation to God, His Father. I don't have the slightest question about who He is in relation to God, His Father. I'm talking about the Godhead now. Not the slightest doubt. Now, do I understand exactly how that relationship works? Do I understand exactly how Jesus was brought about in comparison to God, His Father? The Bible isn't that specific about it. And I would never try to do anything other than theorize about it. Do I understand the nature of the shared authority and power and insights and other things that are between God and His Son, Jesus? But I am absolutely certain about His identity and who He is in relationship to God, His Father. I do not doubt for one second this is the Word of the living God. Do you doubt it? I hope you don't. And if you're brave enough to say you do in here, then hope nobody jumps on you like a monkey on your back. I hope you give us time to show you enough love and enough evidence. Sometimes evidence isn't enough, you know. You realize that the Jews didn't really have what you call apologetics in the biblical period, like what we think of now. Apologetics are when you are making an argument. It's not to apologize. It really means to make an argument for whatever your belief is. They didn't have apologetics about God. They didn't even try to prove His existence. Their response to somebody that said God doesn't exist was to quote the Scripture. You know what Scripture they quote, right? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They weren't going to debate it with you. I'm not saying it's not right to have apologetics about the existence of God. I'm saying they had such a strong conviction about his existence. What is there to debate about? If you can't recognize there's a God, something's seriously wrong with you. Just look around. You've got to be that convicted about your certainty about who God is, that he's real. You've got to be that convicted about your certainty of who Jesus is. And it is important to understand their relationship. I don't mean in these fine theological details, it'd be very hard to understand with a finite human mind, but you do need to understand God is the Father and Jesus is His Son. Is that plain enough? You do need to realize that there's a purpose for what God did when He sent His Son Jesus that started with the cross. What was finished on the cross was that the door and the road and the way for you to get from where you were to God was completely constructed. When Jesus said it is finished, he laid out the path all the way from earth to heaven by what he did on that cross. It was done. But nobody was finished yet but him. Common sense, right? 
He hadn't even risen from the grave. Nobody had faith and repentance after his death and resurrection. So to say it was finished does not mean everybody that believes on him is finished at the cross. What was finished was the construction process to put into place the bridge between earth and heaven. A bridge of blood between earth and heaven. And once that was put into place, he finished what he came to do in terms of that part of the plan of salvation. He put everything together to lead you from the guttermost to the uttermost. And he purchased through that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that would occur some 50 days later. But that hadn't happened yet, so that part wasn't finished. Holy Spirit hadn't been poured out yet. What he finished was what he had to finish to get the whole piece of machinery in place to produce what God was looking for, to bring man back to God. It was done. The engine for the forgiveness of past sins, for the control of present sins, and for the overcoming of future sins was built. And then, after he returned back to the Father, he told them, tarry here until power from God comes. Until the day of Pentecost, you'll be endued with power from on high. That power was the power for that engine to start running. Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not going to be able to go through the process of the path to get from earth to heaven. The Holy Spirit is the link, the blood, the Spirit, the Word. All those things are things that make up the structure of that, I'm using this term in a metaphorical way, bridge between earth and heaven. If there hadn't been blood, the great gulf between God and man could never be crossed. It was the blood of our precious Savior Jesus that sowed back that connection point between God and man that was broken it doesn't matter how good you lived your life. doesn't matter how many sacrifices you offered. The blood of bulls and goats could never bring you back into right relationship with God. They could just keep you from being destroyed early. But the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. And the wages of sin, that's Ezekiel, the wages of sin, Romans, are death. As long as there's still sin in your heart, death is the destination you're headed toward. No matter how good you lived your life during your lifetime, Jesus' blood broke the power of sin. And it opened up the door for the Spirit to be outpoured. And once the Spirit was outpoured, the power rushed down into that church to bring that engine to life, to bring life to the whole structure of this mechanism between earth and heaven to get you back into relationship with God. So the blood of Jesus is the key of all of it. But it's not all of it. Without it, there's nothing. There's no forgiveness from past sins. There's no possibility of relationship with God. There's no Spirit being poured out on you if you're not under the blood. God is not going to fill somebody with the Spirit who has not been washed by the blood. Because when you're being filled with the Spirit, He is filling you with something that's pure, and He's not going to put it in an impure vessel. He's got to cleanse your vessel before He can fill it with the Spirit. And then the Spirit is, going to, is there to help you to keep it clean. Say, so, well, I don't have to keep it clean. You are not understanding the whole testimony of the Bible if you think that's the case. That's what I said. Some folks pick something out. Well, as soon as I believed, I was saved. Well, of course you were. You were saved from your past sin. And if you keep believing so strongly in the Lord that you do everything He asks, you'll be saved to the uttermost. You want to understand what faith really is? It is not just a one-time belief. It is a belief so powerful it permeates your whole being. I believe that He is. And that He is a rewarder. Even if you don't diligently seek Him. What? You don't have to do anything, do you? I believe that He is. This is Hebrews 11. 
I believe that He is. That's part of what's necessary for your faith to be correct. Let's start at the beginning of that chapter. It says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders, the fathers, obtained a good report. You know how they obtained a good report? I just said something about this to the brethren just this morning. This is the 15th chapter. We were talking about Friday night. He told Abraham that he had counted his faith to him for righteousness. That's the same statement that's quoted in the New Testament about faith saving. You get your faith, some people use this theological term, imputed. It just means to be applied to you, counted to you, for righteousness. Here in the sixth verse, he believed in the Lord and the Lord counted it to him for righteousness. I've heard people quote that and say, and he never had to do anything ever again, because from that point on, he would have been righteous no matter what he did. Because that's what it must mean in the New Testament. It's being quoted like that. Just read the rest of the chapter. A couple verses later, you know what God says? I want you to take some animals. I want you to kill these animals. I want you to cut these animals up. I want you to divide them up because we are going to make a covenant between the two of us. Whoa, covenant? You already accounted everything to me for righteousness. What do we need a covenant for? And I shouldn't have to do anything, right? Why do I need to take some of my animals? I don't want to lose my animals. I don't want to go to the messy work of cutting them up and killing them. Can cut, well, you kill them first. God forbid. Killing them and cutting them up. And then not only that, this is the point I was talking about Friday night. Abraham stood over that sacrifice. He did that sometime during the day. He stood over that sacrifice all day long, protecting the sacrifice, the carcasses that were going to be the sacrifice from the fowls of the air that were trying to come down and steal those carcasses, the carrion birds. What if Abraham had said to God, you just said a few verses ago, it wouldn't have been like, there are no verses, all right. But you just said a few verses ago that my faith was counted to me for righteousness. So I know you want me to offer my animals, but I'm not doing it. I don't want to offer my animals. What if he'd said, I could care less about this process because I've already had my faith accounted to me for righteousness after all. So I'm not protecting this sacrifice. The birds want to fly away with it. That's up to God to keep the birds from flying away with the carcasses. He can protect the carcasses if he wants to, right? Why should I stand over the carcasses? God said to do this. He'll take care of it. I'll just let you think about that. That just shows you how incomplete some people's understanding of faith is. That wasn't even the epitome of Abraham's faith. Do you realize the 15th chapter when it said that his faith was accounted him for righteousness came about seven chapters before the greatest act of his faith in his entire life? His faith was accounted him for righteousness. So why in the world did he have to do what he had to do in the 22nd chapter? When he got woken up in the middle of the night to the voice of God saying something no parent would ever want to hear. Abraham, take your son. Thine only son. In that second verse of the 22nd chapter. Whom thou lovest. And take him on a vacation. No, it wasn't any vacation. Take him out for ice cream. No. Take him to this mountain that I'm going to show you. Mount Moriah. I want you to offer him there for a burnt offering. Well, I'm going to tell you what. If my conception, and this is such a simple point, I just want you to consider it. I'm going to try to, I got so many things I got to say on this subject. That's the problem I told my wife. I'm going to try to leave you with this. If Abraham's faith had been accounted to him for righteousness years before this, back in Genesis 15, years before this, and that's all that mattered, he would be righteous in God's eyes from that point on with no requirements of that righteousness. I'm going to tell you, if I knew that about myself, if I believed that view of faith, that very limited, very partial view of what faith really is, I'm going to tell you what I would do if I was a parent. 
When I heard the voice of God say to me, take your son, your only son, Elijah, and take him up and offer him. And offering someone as a burnt sacrifice is, you could offer some that didn't die, you know. You could take grain and offer it up as what amounts to a thanksgiving, where you're saying, thank you for this crop. You don't destroy it. You just offer it up. You raise it up to God. So they did on the day of Pentecost. They lifted up those loaves. They didn't tear the loaves up. They just lifted them up and said, thank you, Lord. He didn't say offer him up as an offering. He said offer him up as a burnt offering. A burnt offering had to be killed. If I knew without a shadow of a doubt that when God said he accounted his faith to him for righteousness, that means from now on I'm set. I don't have any responsibilities whatsoever. I'm still going to have eternal life and immortality no matter what I do with the rest of my life, no matter if I disobey God or not. And then all of a sudden, God wakes me up in the middle of the night and says, Deanna, I want you to take Elijah and I want you to take his life as an offering to me. If I had believed the very limited conception of saving faith that is all you have to do is have believed at some point in the past, and that's all that matters, there is no requirements after that, I would have to say to God, I'm sorry, Lord, that I cannot do. What do you think that would mean? What was the highest expression of Abraham's faith? Years after the passage we just read in Genesis 15, taking his son Isaac up that mountain. You know what Abraham's faith was? It was a faith that was obedient. It wasn't the faith that just believed. It was a faith that obeyed. Because if your faith is really real, if your faith is really real, it will save you. It's guaranteed to save you if it's really real. So when you say you'll be saved by your faith, that's absolutely and 100% correct. If it's real faith... But real faith, real faith, is the kind of faith that says, the person I have faith in, anything they ask, I'll give. Anything they direct me to do, I'll do. Why? Because of my faith in them. If you've got absolute faith that somebody has your best interest at heart, and absolute faith that they know enough about the future, I've talked about this lately, to know what is best for you, they have the power to get you there, and they tell you, here's what I want you to do or not do, who in their right mind would disobey? Faith will produce obedience, or it's not really true faith. Here was Abraham in probably the greatest challenge of his faith in his life. Years and years after his faith had been imputed, I don't like that word because it really carries some connotations that are a little bit inaccurate, but counted to him for righteousness. So of course it was righteous. If you call out to a man in the 12th chapter of Genesis and tell him, I want you to leave everything behind... He's never even, according to the biblical record, apparently ever heard your voice before. Just think about this. No record Abraham had ever heard God's voice before Genesis 12. From the 11th and the 12th, you start hearing about the line of Abraham. No record that he had heard God's voice. And all of a sudden, God speaks to Abraham and he says, I want you to leave behind your country, your kindred, your father's house. I want you to go to a land that you've never been before. There's going to be problems and enemies there and everything else. You just go where I tell you to go. You want to know how Abraham's faith was counted to him for righteousness? You know what Abraham did when God asked him to do it? Well, it tells you in Hebrews 11. Remember, Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. It says, Abraham, when he was called to go out into the country that should afterward receive for an inheritance, was obedient and went out, not knowing whither he went. Abraham just went. That's faith. It's not that you believe the person speaking to you. That's only part of it. It's that you so strongly believe them, whatever they say must be right, must be true, must be required. 
He wants me to go to a country that I've never been before and I've got to leave my entire culture and family behind. Here I am, Lord. That's faith. I get to that country and I've got one challenge after another. And some of them he failed. When he fled down to Egypt and lied about his wife several times to Abimelech as well as the Pharaoh, lying to his wife about, or about his wife, that she was his sister, which is a half-truth. He wasn't demonstrating faith, but he was growing in faith. And by the time he got to the place where his faith was truly tested at its highest level in that 22nd chapter of Genesis, you know what his faith was. We probably talked about this in this assembly or in other assemblies hundreds, if not thousands of times through the years. Do you know what Abraham really had faith in that took him to Mount Moriah? Listen, his faith took him somewhere. His faith didn't just keep him in disobedience. Some people seem to think faith can keep you in disobedience. That's not how faith works. If it's really faith, why in the world would you be disobedient? It doesn't protect you from being disobedient. It changes you so you'll always be obedient. That's real faith. You know what his faith really was? You should know when you read Hebrews 11 and you read some of Paul's statements about Abraham and you read Genesis 22 as well, when he brought that young man up to Mount Moriah, and I think you all know this well, but I'm going to tell you before we receive our offering anyway, in case you don't. If you haven't heard this, you need to hear it. When he brought that young man up to Mount Moriah and he had some helpers, some servants that were traveling with him, he turned to those men who were traveling with him before he took his son up having every intent of taking that boy's life. He didn't say that thinking, I'm not going to do this. Why are you even going up the mountain if you're not going to do it? He had every intent of taking that boy's life, and he turned back to those men, and I don't believe a single word he said was a lie or intended to deceive them. He looked back at those men and he said, I and the lad will return. I'm going to tell you, I can never quote that without feeling the Spirit just rush over me. Do you know what Abraham was saying? Right then, God could have been done. God wanted Abraham to see how strong his faith was, though. That's a big part of what God was doing. God could have been done then. The second that he said, I and the lad will return, the test is really passed. Because you know what? He was on his way to take that boy's life. But he knew, my son's coming back with me. Why? Because God, who I have absolute faith in, promise this son to me and promise me a line through this child. And my faith in him, listen, this is faith. This is saving faith, is so strong. There's not a single resurrection recorded in the Bible before this, you know. There's no record anyone who's ever resurrected before this. He had no reason to think that the impossible could occur, that it never happened in all of history. That's the kind of faith he had. But that wasn't a sit-at-home faith well, thank you, Lord, I really believe in you, but I'm going to live my life the way I see it, and I know you'll be fine with that. No, he's not fine with that. Because if you really believe in me, you'll do what I say. And you know what Abraham did? I'm going up the mountain, God. I'm going to take his life. I brought the knife. I brought the wood. I brought the sacrifice. But I'm also bringing you up the mountain with me. And if you're with me on the mountain, we are all coming back down. You know why we're all coming back down? Because I believe in you. I believe so strong, I'll take my own son's life if you ask me to do it. And I won't doubt for a second that he's going to be alive when we head back down the side of the mountain. I don't understand how that could be possible, but I've got that kind of faith in you. 
My faith is, whatever you ask, I'll do it, because I know whatever you've promised me, you'll do it. That's what our faith is, saints. You know, what has God done for me? What has He made promise and covenant with me? What could He ask of me that I wouldn't do, knowing the covenant He's made with me? Praise His holy name, saints. Praise His mighty name. What could He ask me that I wouldn't do? Praise your holy name. Abraham stood on that mountain with that knife in his hand without a shadow of turning. I have no doubt it was breaking his heart to have to potentially do what he was about to do. I can't even imagine what was going through his son's mind. And you clearly see at the very end he must have understood because the boy said, where's the sacrifice? And he said, the Lord will prepare a sacrifice. And somewhere between saying that, he basically made him the sacrifice. That boy didn't fight his dad. That's another thing that's precious about that story. If you really understand the Bible and you look at chronology, that was no little boy. He had to be 25 or 30 years of age at minimum at this time. If you look at just the chronology, this was a grown man in his prime and an elderly man trying to kill him. Even if that's your dad, are you going to let your elderly father, you know, you'd say he must be senile. He must have lost his mind. He's trying to kill me. Are you going to say, go ahead, dad. No record of Isaac fighting his dad. Any more than there was any record of Jesus fighting his dad. Jesus didn't fight his father either. He asked him, this is a question someone just sent to me yesterday. He asked him, is this what's necessary? Is this the process I have to go through? That's what he meant when he said, if it be possible, can this cup pass from me? It wasn't the cup of dying. It wasn't the cup of the things that would have to occur as part of his death, that separation and other things. It was the process that was as brutal as it was that would lead to that death. But nevertheless, not as I will. I'm going to tell you, no record of Isaac fighting his dad. But Abraham picked up that knife and got ready to do what he did. And the angel of the Lord came and stopped his hand. He would have had to stop his hand because Abraham was going to do what God had asked him to do. That was the demonstration of his faith. He was going to do what God had asked him to do. You want to know if you've got real faith? You will do what God has asked you to do. You may not understand it. It may break your heart. It may be difficult. But if God has led you to do it, you will do it. If it's hard to serve God, if the pressures of the world are coming, if somebody offends you or hurts you, God forbid, in the church or out of the church, you will still serve God. If you know God has led you here, you'll stay here. If you know God is speaking, you'll listen. If you know God is moving, you'll be sensitive to His moving. Whatever God asks you to do, you'll do. Amen? That's the proof of your faith. It's the evidence of your faith. The evidence of your faith is, are you obedient to it? Is there anything that God could ask that you wouldn't do? If there is, then you don't have enough faith. If you have enough faith, you'll be saved. Faith always is what is important. But it's a faith that translates into obedience. That's the whole subject of that 11th chapter of Hebrews and the statements that one after another. They had faith in God and here's what they did. They had faith in God and here's what they did. They had faith in God and here's what they did. In the face of terrible brutality. Look at the very end, the terrible list of things that happened to some of those people. They had faith in God, so they were willing to go through whatever the price was. Those precious three young Hebrew men, Daniel, they're both mentioned in there, even though their names aren't mentioned in the statement that said, faith that stopped the mouths of lions. 
What's faith stop the mouths of lions? Daniel in his room in his closet with the door closed and nobody knew he had that faith and he said, Lord, I've got faith in you. Oh, no, no. The faith of Daniel to stop the mouths of lions is when the king said, here's the decree. I'm the only one to be worshiped and prayed to. And Daniel said, God expects me to pray to him. I'm going to start praying. I'm going to make sure everybody knows I'm praying. Three Hebrew young men, as you know, one of the most powerful stories in the entire Bible. I probably mentioned this one more than I mentioned any other story because it, to me, is one of the most significant examples of faith and obedience. They knew they would be disobeying the law of God if they were to bow to anything but God. As a God, they knew they'd be disobeying the law of God if they went along with that worship of that pagan false image. That was far more important to them than any price they might have to pay. And they did not, as you know the story well, have any guarantee of anything. In fact, they were very strong in their statement about that, that we don't know, King, if our God will deliver us or not. Here's where you need to rightly divide faith, and I'm going to try to sit down. Some people might say, well, faith would say, God will deliver me. You've got an immature conception of faith. You know what faith will say? I believe in him so strongly. And that what, listen, whatever he wants to do, even if it hurts me, I believe in him. I don't know if he's going to save me. This is not a name it and claim it religion that we have that you say, if I just believe strong enough, God will have to save me. It's not that kind of belief that saves you. I'll tell you what kind of belief it is. I believe in God. If he takes me into the furnace and I die in the furnace, I believe in God. If he lets me go through the torment of this condition, I believe in God. He has told me I am not to bow to any God but him. I believe in God and I'm not going to bow. And because I am obedient to those beliefs, nothing will ever steal that faith from me. As long as you're obedient and faithful to your faith, you'll never have your faith stolen from you. So those young men could stand there and look at that king and say, O oh, king, we're not going to worship you. Serve your gods or worship this golden image that you set up. And it makes no difference to us if God saves us or not, because that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because we believe that he is real and he's the only one that is. And if he's the only one that's real, whatever it costs us will be better to remain in relationship with him through our obedience than to break that relationship and be cut off from him. Amen? All right, well, I wasn't planned on saying all that today. I've got a heavy burden on my heart on this subject, and I could probably talk for hours longer on it, but I don't want to do that. We're already well over. It's a precious blessing to be here today in spite of the limitations we have in terms of people gone and we got a blessing of having Brother Rick and Sister Kim with us here today. And just all the way from the back of the building, I can feel your spirits. whole time I've been talking, I've been feeling something, just like a thread connecting my heart to yours. Praise His holy name, saints. Isn't the family of God a precious thing? Aren't the things of God all precious? I'll tell you, there's nothing that God provides for us that isn't precious. And now we can provide something for Him. And you know how a sacrifice works. It has to be something that costs you something. Sacrifices aren't easy to give. They're hard to give. It takes you looking yourself in the eye and saying, is what I'm giving to God a sacrifice or is it easy for me to give? If it's easy to give, it probably isn't a sacrifice. Not all your giving has to be a sacrifice, but we want to be sacrificial in what we do whenever we can. So we're going to change the order here, so to speak. We're going to 
shift into a different aspect of the service and receive our Sunday afternoon offering. And we'll give window of opportunity here after we do that. See if anybody wants to say anything before the brethren closes here with prayer. with us to help us further us along the way in his path so I want to hold on to these things and keep them in my heart and the other thing I wanted to say was it's just good to be here in Mansfield a lot of roots isn't there (laughs) sister Stollard I remember you and your children and brother Don coming in all the time and we'd come down here and (laughs) just a wonderful feeling to be reconnected with the people from here in Mansfield. Thank you for letting us come here. Praise God. Great share of heritage. Praise the Lord. Well, they put me on the spot. (laughs) Um, I just want to say I'm so blessed to be here today. It's been something that Rick and I have been longing for for a while now and it just didn't happen but i believe that god's timing was perfect today and bringing us here this weekend and just feeling the good feeling that's here in the sanctuary and the help that we've received today from the words that we heard words of truth and words of light and i just feel the hope of god just renewed and rekindled in my heart today and i i just thank god for the privilege of being here with all of you and i just so appreciate it thank you lord thank you lord praise the lord thank you Bear mentioned something uh, last Friday night I'd never even considered. Uh, Abraham, as the birds were coming down, he was getting them away, but he put it in a way, because I read it over and over again, I just never thought about it. You know, this this word diligence in some scriptures, some translations, it says he's the rewarder of those who seek him. Some of them say he's the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. But the King James says he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We see these examples of Daniel. He did, even if a lion chews me up, or if I'm burned up in a fire, these were diligently seeking God. Abraham, when he sacrificed his son, I said this last week, he dug deep in his pocket to give to God. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect, but we're aiming for it. So we have to really diligently continue to seek until right. he brings us into what he wants us to be. Yeah. And we know that what, what, what that is. And the very fact that he's working on us, we need to remember we've got our part to do. That's what that said. Laying down those pieces, when they passed through those pieces together, they said, I've got my part to do and you've got your part to do. God said when that burning lamp went in between, it showed that he did both parts. Man fell short so when jesus died on the cross he took our part the whole idea is if i fail to do my part let me become as one of these and those were those were sacrificed they were tore up animals and jesus took that part and he because we failed he took that part he became as one of those but the very fact that he made sure that that covenant god made sure that covenant was we need to make sure that we're doing our part And we need to really, no matter what we've done in our life, continue to go on in that path. Continue to go on it and shoo away the birds, anything that will take away. We make mistakes, but let's just keep right on going and shoo away those. Anything we need to protect our sacrifices. And that is ourselves as a living sacrifice 
to God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you give to us, Lord. These wonderful examples, Lord. Let us continue, Lord, because we know, Lord, that you delight in loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth, that we may know you, Lord, not to boast in anything, but that we know you. You brought us to come to know this. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. We have that trust that you're going to take us on and finish what you completed in us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Be with each and every one of us and those on the prayer list. Every single person pray for the ministry. Lord, we lift these up before you, knowing that you're watching over. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.